Hi, my name is Titi Mutendi and you are listening to Enterprising Families Podcast. Welcome to the world of Enterprising Families where we discuss the issues of governance, next gen and looking at how families of wealth and family businesses growing into families of wealth can preserve their wealth, become better as they go forward into a new generation. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Enterprising Families. And in this episode of Enterprising Families, I have Jeremy Green, and he's going to be talking to us about staffing, recruiting, and making sure that our family officers represent us as a family and also resonate with us as a family. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you very much for having me. And I'm going to let you introduce yourself before we jump into the topic of recruiting for family officers. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, Tissy, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me um, uh, to speak. It's a, it's a, a great pleasure. Um, uh, I'm Jeremy Green. I work for a company called Agrius, who's based uh, just on the outskirts of London. We're a specialist recruitment company for the family office space. Uh, and it's a space we got into uh, by invitation, um, because it's a, an interesting space to, to, to try and break into because it's quite secretive, it's very discreet. Uh, and we worked for a, uh, we were recommended to a family office. They um, were pleased with what we did, introduce us to another family office. And we sort of realised this is a strange space that nobody really addresses. And uh, that was maybe 10 years ago. And along that journey, we've um, chosen to specialise uh, specifically for family offices and we've tried to learn as much as we can about them become a subject matter expert and I think what we're going to discuss um, today is what makes family offices different what makes recruiting for them different and the importance of retaining staff in those sort of places. Okay and talking about family offices I know like in the past few years five five to 10 years as, as you guys have been growing your, um, your company, there has been um, a spike in family offices. More and more families, especially with significant wealth, have decided to open up family offices to cater to, to their needs and obviously to help them manage their family as well as help them manage their different assets they may have and the different enterprises they may be running. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience now in terms of the growth that you've seen in the family office space and the trends that you've seen also in the hiring in the family office space? Certainly. Uh, what is interesting is that, that the family offices seem to be this new growing phenomenon, but uh, they go back a long way. Um, uh, they started in the States, but you can think of the, the in people like the Rothschilds and, and so on. Their family offices have been around for a long period of time. But uh, as wealth has been created, so have family offices grown. Uh, we saw um, a uh, perhaps uh, what kickstarted it, it a little bit was the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our current client, clients who have comparatively new family offices, they were um, prompted to create a family office because they felt let down by the, um, the professional investment services, the private banks, mm -hmm. who after all have a slightly different uh, raison d'etre than the, the family than the family office. The family office that serves that family, mm -hmm. whether it's an individual or the whole family. 
they report to no shareholders, they don't have to look at the quarterly PL. Uh, all they have to do is to look after that individual or that family as well. Whatever the, the banks are doing, obviously they still have responsibility to their shareholders. Um, if their clients aren't trading, they, they're not getting fees for the trades. So there can be a difference between uh, what the service, the private banks and the wealth managers think they provide mm-hmm. and what the family offices um, actually perceive them as, as, as giving. And we did a, an article on that uh, quite a few years ago now. And it was very interesting speaking to um, CEOs of family offices and of private banks and where they thought, this is what we're delivering. And the guys saying, well, this is what we're receiving. This is what it feels like. Mm-hmm. So there's a great drive to um, take control over your assets and, and your life. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that has seen a surge in family offices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have a conversation at the moment with somebody who's setting up a family office. And uh, it has, by because it's growing and because there is a there are major investors, um, they're attracting a lot more attention these days. So they're having to become more professionalised. If they're trying to attract the top staff from uh, investment banks, investment banks are incredibly benchmarked in terms of uh, remuneration and how they're, they're rewarded generally. Mm-hmm. Family offices, they, they didn't really have that data. And some, some of them were inviting friends they knew or Perhaps the accountant that's worked at one of the big four always looked after them. So why don't you come on board? Mm-hmm. Or my friend is just um, qualified from Harvard and he's uh, you know, a genius with, with finances. Let's get him on board. Mm-hmm. That, that can work, but it can also uh, lead to disaster because first of all, that's your friend. If he's not doing well, can you then get rid of him easily? It's, it's not, not that easy. Mm. So we've seen a move towards the professionalization of family offices. There is an increase in the number of them, uh, and that's still growing. Uh, the network supporting those family offices is growing, and they're seen very much more now as a target market for investment companies and uh, all those sorts of service providers. Um, as I said, the talent pool tends to be from very structured environments. So one of the challenges for us is to try and uh, educate the family office as to what it is uh, that they're the staff they're trying to get on board, what they're rewarded at the moment and how they're rewarded and why would they move to their family office? Mm. Um, so that's been a challenge. And one of the things we, we did was to create, uh, we've done this several times now, um, a remuneration report, a family office global compensation report. And our latest one is, is global because we just saw the need and the, the demand. And it is very interesting seeing um, how the different uh, different family offices with different requirements reward in a different way. An example would be for a chief uh, investment officer, for instance, we Mm. saw um, a huge uh, bandwidth of uh, remuneration and it became clear that there's one family office that we spoke to, they pay a a very insignificant salary for a chief investment officer, Mm -hmm. but they give him a huge carry on the uh, investment success. So the return on assets is, 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 is large, he gets a fantastic package. There's another family office where they, um, I think it's £400,000 or more uh, as a basic salary, but the bonus was was fairly small. And the reason was that the first family office, they're keen to maximise their assets. The second, it was an older generation family, and they're much more about preserving assets and lowering risk. So Mm -hmm. the reward structure reflects what you're trying to do. And that, I think, is something that um, family offices need to understand and, and know before they're going out into the market. 
you've brought up quite a number of significant issues there. So I'm just going to try to unpack them and uh, try to dissect them as, as we're talking. <laughs> okay, yeah. firstly, the issue of why set up a family office? Um, like you mm. said, family offices are being set up or started being set up because people realized that they weren't getting the service that they wanted or expected from an organization that had its own mandate and they were just one of many customers. So they wanted to be the only customer and have that personalized service, that correct? Absolutely. And that, that's spot on. And there's a single, obviously, family offices are diff, uh, as different as families are. So they have different motivations. But if you were just to say, OK, what is the one thing that prompts people to set up a family office? And it's control, every time control. We had an event um, about structuring the family office and we had um, a couple of uh, CIOs and ex-CIOs of family offices on the panel. And we were talking about what... Um, uh, what motivated their their principle to set up a family office? And one said um, there are about five things. Four of them are control, and the other was discretion. So you know that that's very much the driving force. And uh, I mentioned, and you you uh, re- repeated the fact that the mandate for a uh, a wealth provider or a private bank is different from uh, a family office. That's absolutely true. And it's also true that the time horizon is very different. The family office are looking at next. And I know we're going to perhaps talk about uh, next generation, but they're looking at uh, this generation, the next generation and educating their people for the generation after that. Mm-hmm. They're not going to make a transaction which is immediate. Um, some people that we were speaking to, they're looking at um, uh, buying hotels. Cause hotels, because of the current crisis, have been written down a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, they probably won't make a huge profit on those in the next three, four years. But in 15 years, it would prove to be a very sound investment. And that's the time horizon they look at, which um, some of the, you know, the banks don't necessarily have the uh, ability to do. Mm-hmm. And also, I think just looking at that, understanding each family is difficult for a big organization. You might have 100, 200 clients. And having dedicated staff for each and every client is not always optimum. So you have uh, staff that is handling two or three clients. And like you said, it's about control. You want to have somebody who's dedicated to me personally and who's going to look after my needs personally. Yes, and and it's accountability. Um, Mm -hmm. They set up a family office and whether it's somebody looking after their private jet or their private yacht or just their assets, they are accountable to the principal for, for, for those things. They're not accountable to their, um, uh, the head of their department or the MD or the CEO of, of the bank uh, or the, ultimately the shareholders. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they report and they're accountable to the principal. And that's, and that's an interesting thing as well because uh, any private bank or wealth manager is going to offer what they see as the, as the best advice to, to these people. But... These people have sufficient wealth that they 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 want control of that wealth. So you might get, um, and this is uh, this is a factual um, uh, history. We had a client who um, that made their wealth in, in various different uh, areas, mm-hmm. um, and they employed somebody to look after that. And they had a had a farm. They they liked the country life, and that's when they moved their bases of operations. And um, they wanted to start a. Uh, I think it was um, goat's cheese. So they want to get lots of goats and goat's cheese. And the CIO had to cross that out for them and say, look, 
know, this really is not best use of your money because what we should be doing is putting it in X, Y, Z, and the return will be this, and the invariance and the capital risk is this. If you go to the goat farm, it's going to be this, that, the other. And of course, the, you know, the principal wasn't so worried about the PL. He was saying, look, I want a goat farm. I've got enough money, so I want a goat farm. So if you get people from the wrong uh, wrong mindset, they'll say, they'll say, look, I'm the CIO, I'm, I'm, I'm advising you, this is what you should do. And what actually you have to do if you're working for that principal, you're fulfilling his requirements. So you then have to look at the goat farm and say, what is the best way and the most efficient way I can set up the goat farm for him? So it hopefully does make some money, obviously not as much as the uh, invested in whatever it was, but that's what he wants. I'm going to deliver that in the best possible way. And that is something that uh, a mindset for family offices, which which can be very different from people coming out of the larger corporate world. Mm-hmm. And so now looking at, we've decided as a family, we want to set up a family office and mm-hmm. uh, it's something that's in our best interest, or we think that this is a vehicle that we want to have at this point in time. What are the things that we should be looking at as a family in terms of recruiting? Obviously, you're not going to have 100 members of staff in that family office. There should be key people that should be able to help us reach our goals. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What should well, first we of all, I think, yeah, sorry. I, I think, sorry. Um, I think before you set up the family office, you've got to really understand why. Mm-hmm. Um, is it just for control? Uh, is it because um, you want a bit of um, discretion or a bit of privacy? Um, but you've also got to understand what, 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 what are your values as a family? Uh, because you want to reflect that in, in the family office. Then you have to set up the structure according to that. Uh, make sure that the culture of that office aligns with your future strategy and also that the hiring is going to fit in with with that that culture Mm -hmm. so that's the first thing establishing what what is right for you and as as a family office develops and um goes into next generations uh, governance becomes an issue as well because um you want to make sure that uh, it isn't the next generation doesn't destroy what you built up Mm -hmm. in terms of of um the getting the, the right people in it is worth reflecting that uh, more than 60% of the total costs of a family office are generally allocated to staff compensation and benefits. Mm-hmm. So you want to get that right. Uh, and also, I'll quote a, a CEO of a family office I was speaking to at, a, um, uh, at an event who said he'd rather inherit um, a family office with bad systems and, uh, and good people than uh, sorry, with bad systems with good people than with uh, good systems and bad people because he said inevitably if you've got good people they will sort out that bad, bad system they'll make it work while they have to and they'll, they'll, they'll make sure they replace it and, and make it right if you've got a great system in place but not the right people operating it it will crumble and fail so people are not only a, a huge cost but they are the most significant I think we had a strap line for one of our events people are your greatest talent and I think, you know, sorry, your greatest asset. No, that's right. And, and I think you know, that, that, that's arguable. So then you've got your family office. You know why you're setting up. You know what the culture is. If you're recruiting for Morgan Stanley or Citigroup um, in, uh, as an analyst, perhaps, you're putting that on a team of maybe 10 people. They're on a division of 40 people. They're on a floor of 100, 120. Their personality trait and, and their 
whatever they their, their background is and whether their attitude to their staff is not so important because they're one of a hundred people. Mm-hmm. If you've got a family office of typically you know, seven to ten people, you know that's you know I'm thinking of two family offices, one of one and a half billion dollars, one of two billion dollars. They've got one's got seven people, uh, the other's got ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, any person joining that team is a significant uh, risk in terms of they could disrupt that team. And we've had, um, you know, there's been plenty of stories of that happening when recruitment has got wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've been asked to help sort it out. And then we as a, a recruitment company have to really try and understand uh, the culture of, of that place. The technical side is generally not an issue. Uh, if, an accountant is an accountant. He might be a management accountant, might be a fund accountant. But once you identify the technical skill set, that's not too much of a problem. There are qualifications. There is a work experience you can refer to. Uh, we get testimonial references, and, and that clarifies whether they can do the job. So once you've established that, you can do that job. Can you do that job in that particular family office for that particular team? Uh, sometimes for that particular principle, because principals uh, sometimes get involved themselves. And, you know, family offices vary from some are um, not very pleasant places to work. Uh, others are absolutely fabulous places to work, and, you know, a dream job for people. Uh, so you have to work out who's going to thrive in, in which environment. And uh, that is a, a, a quite a subtle, uh, a subtle um, task. We have, uh, we're working, for instance, at the moment for a principal who's looking for a PA, um, quite a high level PA, but there's much more to it. There's a personal engagement there. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a cultural background to that PA, which um, we have to try and match and fit and find the person who is who is right for it. Mm-hmm. So that's the cultural map. Then the personality fit. You know, some people are quite abrasive. Some There are national characteristics, perhaps. And you know, Ru- Russians tend not to smile so much because they don't think that is a, that, that seemed to be a bit of a weakness. And if they're engaging with uh, other parts of the world, you know, that's something they, they have to understand themselves. But, you know, if we're recruiting into a family office, which is a, a Russian family office, some people will go in and find that they've been treated quite abruptly. Uh, and it's not intentional. It's just the way they engage with people. So all these subtleties are, are things that we have to have to look at and try and match. Hmm. And I'm thinking from what you're saying also, it's very much um, issue of culture, the culture that is created in the family office from, from the get-go. What type of culture do you want to foster in your family office? And then when you're hiring to ensure that the, the type of people that you then bring on board are people who can adapt to this culture yes. and are also intuitive. I think having staff that can empathize and understand what's going on with the principal is probably really key in such a setup because it's what I would call a very high level private setting where you're having one-on-one with with somebody which a lot of people is is lining up at the door trying to get in to have a one-on-one with and in this one-on-one you it's sometimes they're busy and yeah. at some point, you need to be able to get to understand the principal and understand what their needs is. And sometimes their needs are not spelled out as mm. in, this is what I want. Yes. And it, obviously, as someone who works in such an environment, you have to have some, some type of understanding. And, and I think also that then falls to 
as a principal, as people hiring for the family office, to also have a, an understanding of what our culture is as a family. I think that's absolutely spot on. And uh, you mentioned um, uh, empathy, um, and, and that is and being uh, intuitive. Uh, that's absolutely right. Uh, there's one part of, of, of um, the equation is you get somebody from one of these big organizations. So can they fit in the small team, get the personality right? The other thing with that person is that they're used to working in a big team. Family office, uh, basically there's you and your half a dozen people around you. You've got to get the job done. So if something comes in and it's not allocated to anybody, well, guess what? One of you is going to have to do it. So it doesn't suit people who like to be in a silo and just doing one task. I'm an equity analyst. That's what I do. Fixed income. No, that's over there. I do that. You, know, you want somebody, okay, I'm doing equity analysis at the moment. Fixed income. I know the rules for that. Let me have a look, see if I can help. There's um, another um, good friend of ours that said, uh, and I think it's well quoted, is if, if you've met one family office, you've met one family office. I mean, they're all very, very different. And there tends to be a very flat structure. So it doesn't suit people who um, they want job titles because you know, there's there's uh, there, there's you know if there's seven people there, well, how many job titles can you possibly have? And uh, the uh, you know family office um, you know progression within a family office tends to be horizontal. You know you're sitting in that job, something else comes. It doesn't give you a new job title, but your responsibilities grow as you're proven uh, in your ability and and your trust. But the um, uh, and also big egos don't tend to work. You know, if you're um, coming from a, a significant role in a, an investment bank and you walk into a small family office and you'll think, well, I'm the big guy from Goldman Sachs or whatever it might be, other investment banks are available, uh, then it's probably not going to go down well with the principal who has employed somebody to look after him. Mm -hmm. And uh, they might well have a, quite a sizable ego themselves if they've created a, a significant amount of wealth. So the last thing you need is somebody who's uh, who has a very high opinion of uh, themselves. They have to know that they're going in to serve the needs of that family. And if it's the right family, they will serve their needs back because if you've got somebody who's doing a great job for you, you want to retain them. And that's something that uh, you've got to look at very, very carefully. And we give quite a lot of advice on that, um, both indirectly and directly, um, because it's such an important uh, part of a family office. And we've mentioned discretion family office you've got seven people you don't want to be recruiting all the time because that takes your time up that person then got to get to know you and if you want discretion you don't want that person learning that information and then going off somewhere else you want them to retain to be retained and stay with you and become a loyal part of your team over a long period of time and that's why we see successful family offices tend to have staff over a long period of time mm. Talking about retaining staff, what are the key elements of retaining staff that family offices need to look at, that principals need to look at? Because like you said, obviously, there's a lot of discretion that happens when you work one-on-one -on, -one on somebody. You get mm. access to a lot of information that is not privy to the public or, mm. or sometimes privy to even certain family members. Why is retaining staff really important? And retaining the right staff, not just any staff, but the right staff? Well, if you've got a limited number of people, um, obviously you, you, you really can't have somebody who's not doing the job properly. So, you know, seven people or 10 people, you know, if, if one person's not doing a, a, a great job, that's 10% of your workforce who is, is not doing well. Plus, if they are disruptive, 
then it's not just 10% that's, that's not doing well. They're going to impact the other 90% who probably won't work so well and also maybe get upset and, and they'll leave. And then you lose your, 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 you know, somebody who is very important to you. So getting the right staff in, in, in place is, is uh, absolute key for the long-term success of an office. And, to, and finding that person at the, at the starting point is trying to find somebody who understands what you're trying to do, understands your family values, understands what the structure is that they're likely to go into. Are they going to fit in with that? Is that something that, that they are ambitious about? Is there um, one thing that you do see is uh, what's my career progression there? That's quite hard to define because, um, okay, you're going as an analyst, you'll then be an associate, then you'll be a senior associate. That won't really happen, but you'll go in as an analyst and then you'll learn things you've never seen before, you've never had exposure to before. Mm -hmm. And you know, if we had a, an analyst into the the 10-man, um, $2 billion uh, family office that we've worked with in the past. And one of the reasons the, the guy went in there, he said, look, I'm going to be number two to the senior investment guy. Uh, I'm never going to be as close to having responsibility for this sort of um, broad, sizable and interesting uh, assets in various different uh, asset classes uh, the experience is just while i can't get anywhere else and that is true so the opportunity within a family office is fantastic but you've got to make sure they understand what they're getting into and um and one of the um perhaps uh, going off on a slight tangent is our experience recruiting for family offices is sometimes they don't know exactly what they want mm -hmm. and that's a learning process because they can come with a I need a financial control or I need something else. And when you investigate what, what the actual role is, then it's significantly different to, to what they actually believe it is in their own heads until they've articulated, uh, until they've um, met perhaps candidates from a, a different range. And they say, um, for instance, you're looking for um, chief operating officer to look after our assets. It's a country estate, um, uh, a yacht, um, a bit of private aviation, some um, luxury cars, villas, whatever it might be. And you introduce people who have all that experience. They've worked in single family offices. The culture is probably going to be right. It's good. And then the interview goes a bit further. They say they're really, really good, but they didn't really know too much about the, the, the yacht. So they move on to somebody else. And you get somebody else say, oh, fantastic on the uh, the artwork we're looking for. But uh, I asked them a bit about the, um, the sort of the average cost of, of running a yacht and they weren't really too sure. And after a few bits, you think this is not about anything really um, other than your yacht. You want somebody to look after your yacht. And, and that was the case. He saw it as a COO looking after all this stuff, but his pet baby was the, this new yacht. And that's what he wanted to look after. And once you understand that, mm -hmm. and once they understand that a little bit more, then you can answer, answer their, um, their questions. And quite often, now, we do try and act as a consultant to, to, to our family office clients because they, they, have a, they have a problem and they're looking, to a, they're looking for a solution to it. And sometimes they think this is the solution and it may well be, or perhaps there are more uh, economic and cleaner and more efficient ways to approach that problem. And, you know, we try and consult with them. We will do what they ask us to do, but uh, frequently they ask us, how are, we going to, uh, how are we going to do this? And if we've got experience with other family offices facing the same issue then hopefully you've got the experience which will add value to them mm. wow it's so interesting how it looks so easy when you're thinking you're setting up an office and you're going to have people mm. who are going to help you out 
But when you get into the real intricacies of it, you realize that there's different functions that need to be catered for. And um, you have to really look at what you are trying to achieve as a family and what the long-term goal is. And looking at long-term goal, how, how can a family start planning for the long-term whilst building their family office today? Well, you have a family office because you have sufficient uh, assets to make it economically viable. Otherwise, you'd probably um, go to a, a private bank to look after your, your, your assets. But building over the long term, and obviously everybody's uh, aims uh, may may differ, but um, if you're talking long-term, you're, you're talking multi-generation. And generally, you want something in place which everybody's in agreement with. So having um, a... a proper governance is um, and perhaps a charter for the family so uh, the founder and perhaps the next gen um, used to see okay this is what we have at the moment this is what our aims are this is what our values are and if everyone can subscribe to that and agree with that then uh, you can uh, you can hopefully have some continuity the next generation comes after that you perhaps get them involved at a, a young age you know I'm really young getting sort of um, 10 years old Perhaps take them out to some of the projects you're, you're working on, get them to, to have some familiarity with what their family is about. Uh, and, you know, you're a young kid, you're 10 years old, you, know, you don't really sort of understand it all, but you're beginning to get um, get some sort of feel of, of what it's about. And as you get older, you might inquire a little bit more, and then perhaps they get in, involved in the um, with governments and the, um, uh, the, the charge of the family, and they understand what's going on. Where it can go wrong is if there is a hugely powerful matriarch or patriarch who is running everything and the, um, the other, any other partners or um, sons and daughters don't really have any say. When it comes for that, um, that, that, uh, that person to, whether they, they, they pass on or they, uh, they pass the, 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 uh, the running over to the new next generation, that can be a problem because you haven't necessarily got engagement with the next generation with the first generation's um, uh, values. He set something up, she set something up, it's been fantastically successful, so they don't listen to anybody else. Okay, young John or uh, Alexandra or whatever it might be, yeah, yeah, listen to dad or listen to mum, this is what we do. Now, when they're out of the way, suddenly the brakes are off, I can do what I want now. So all those advisors that the patriarch, matriarch put in place for very good reason, because they've made that money, so they're, 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 they're pretty smart. All those advisors, they serve the patriarch. I want my own people. So you can get um, uh, you can get uh, a real problem there with that transition. And even if they're smart about it and think, I'll tell you what I do, I'm going to set up a trust so that when uh, I pass away, then the uh, my sons and daughters and uh, my wife or my husband who's, who's left behind, uh, they can't squabble because it's all sorted out with the trust. Uh, then you get a battle between the trustees who have a job to do legally and required to protect the um, uh, the inheritors and the inheritors who want to do it their way. Mm-hmm. And, and that can lead to paralysis. So by far the best way to, to make it work is to have that genuine understanding so that you're all part of the same thing. You're all pulling in the same direction so that when somebody moves out of the way, you're still going in the same direction because everybody's on board. And I think if you're trying to um, provide for the longevity of your family office, that is crucial. Mm. 
And I think because I love family governance, I live and breathe it through my consultancy. Mm-hmm. What you're saying is music to my ears. I know how important it is. Every, everybody should be speaking to you, Tetsi. <laughs> I know it's so important. You know, communication um, is taken for granted across the board. I think um, everybody thinks they are communicating when sometimes we're just speaking at each other and sometimes mm-hmm. we're not really listening we're hearing but we're not really listening and um, so those skills are very crucial and um, more so when you have when you bring in people who are not family but become part of the family by extension Mm -hmm. and obviously when you have different generations like you said if you in the majority of cases you usually do have one dominant um patriarch one dominant matriarch the person who sets up this business or the person who has been steward of this business and leading the family who makes the decision and and sets up the family offers or sets up the various investment vehicles and as you said even with trust in place you get that tussle that happens and then sometimes Mm. you get the family office not being able to function because there's an ongoing battle there and it becomes a cost factor within itself and the people who are working there no longer know who they're working for and why they're working and what the goal is so that communication within the family is very very critical yes and then you get you mentioned the uh, people outside the family um our last survey the majority of ceos of the family office are non-family members mm-hmm. and one of the um tasks that we, we did not so long ago for a family was to the ceo and the cio were both sons and there were five members of the family in the family office mm-hmm. now, how do you work out the remuneration for those people because they're family members what value do you put on the trust because they're family members mm-hmm. one's a ceo one's a cio what value are they each individually bringing in and how do you reward uh, the value that they, they bring in? And those are, uh, and they brought us in because we're a third party external, so we can look at uh, dispassionately. But these are all questions which um, can add to the complication of, uh, and the, the uh, tension uh, within the dynamics of a family. Mm. And like you said, it does add tension, especially when you are, when, when, hiring happens and there's no pre-planning so i think pre-planning when you are doing your hiring is very critical as well because it it gives you some sort of roadmap some sort of deliverables and at times like you said you may not know exactly what you're looking to hire for but just having an idea of the direction that you want to go in will help significantly especially in terms of not turning around stuff ever so often and also not hiring based on emotive because by hiring based on emotion like you said can become a very difficult situation when you hire um your cousin so and so to work in your family office or your best friend from high school because they uh, graduated from harvard and now you Mm. realize you're two totally different people you know high school buddies but even so, even they are. I mean, if, if, if it's your buddies looking after your money, they're going to, they're going to say the things you want to hear, or, or more likely to. If you've got somebody who's professionally distanced, then um, they're representing your best interest. Now, I, I refer to the uh, the goat farm uh, analogy. They they had to give their professional advice 
but within the context of what that principle wants. And I think that's, you know, that, that's a, a leap of understanding that some people can't make. They just know this is the this is the best thing to do and we've got to do it. But they have to understand, you know, the reason they're, they're, they're employed, they're to look after uh, the principal's uh, assets, look after his life, uh, his her life, uh, make their lives better. Most definitely. Thank you. Thank you so much once again, Jeremy, for joining me today. I'm sure we're going to have many such conversations because we, ha- we just so. scratched the, the surface <laughs> of this discussion. And I really yeah. enjoyed having this chat with you. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's lovely to speak to you again.